the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producer, Sam Maupin, engineer. Today in the uh, second half of this first hour, we're going to talk with Mark Paoletta, at least we hope we will. He's the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas, in his own words. Really fascinating. And the book has much more detail than did the documentary that was released, I believe, either last year or early this year. Anyway, Mark Paoletta will join us to talk about uh, that later in this hour. First, to look at some of the day's headlines. Former President Donald Trump isn't on the ballot on Tuesday, today, in Maryland's primary. But he's front and center as the candidates he's backing is uh, one of the uh, co-front runners in the race for the Republican nomination for governor. Also a factor are national Democrats who've uh, spent seven figures to meddle in the GOP primary. Well, the other marquee contest is the crowded field of contenders that are vying for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination that includes a former U.S. Labor Secretary who later served as Democratic National Committee Chair, a former U.S. Secretary of Education, the state's current comptroller, and a best-selling author who can count on Oprah Winfrey as a top supporter. There's also a couple of congressional primary showdowns that are um, grabbing some national attention. Voters head to the polls in the blue state, Maryland. In the um, the race, uh, uh, succeed term limit Republican Governor Larry Hogan. Uh, the former president's long been backing state delegate Don Cox, or rather Dan Cox, in the Republican primary. Hogan's backing Kelly Schultz, a former state lawmaker who serves as Maryland's Secretary of Labor and Secretary of Commerce in the governor's administration. Cox and Schultz are the two clear front runners in the most recent polling of the four candidates. Well, the former president, in a statement last week, said that Dan will end Larry Hogan's terrible rhino reign by defeating his never Trump successor, another low energy rhino, Kelly Schultz, end quote. During the recent um, tele-rally for Cox, the former president argued that you don't want Hogan's anointed successor, anybody he wants, frankly, I'd be against just on that basis alone. The beauty of politics. Former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has dropped out of the race for New York's uh, 10th congressional district, saying it was time for him to bow out of electoral politics. De Blasio he was probably the last to uh, to come to that conclusion. He made the announcement Tuesday via social media where he said that it had become clear that the people of the district are looking for another option. It's clear the people of New York 10 are looking for another option, and I respect that. Time for me to leave electoral politics and focus on other ways to serve. I am really grateful for all the people I met, the stories I heard, and the many good souls who helped out. Thank you all, end quote. De Blasio's exit from the electoral field of the Democratic Party is not a surprise, as the former mayor has steadily fallen in the polls since the beginning of the pandemic. Earlier this year, he turned down a run for New York governor as the as he polled far behind Governor Kathy Hochul in the Democratic primary. After a pretty intense backlash from local uh, bodega workers and city tabloids, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg today dropped all charges against bodega clerk 
Jose Alba, who was allegedly acting in self-defense when he fatally stabbed a man who was attacking him. There was video demonstrating what actually happened, and that's probably what saved him. The liberal DA's decision comes after weeks of criticism of his decision to send the 61-year-old to Rikers Island and charge him with second-degree murder in the death of a 35-year-old Austin Simon. Bragg's first, uh, rather Bragg first requested Alba's bail be set at $500,000 before it was lowered to 50000 in response to criticism from the community. He was later released on a $5,000 bail bond. Well, as I mentioned, video obtained by the New York Post seemed to show Simon advancing on Alba at the bodega where Alba works and violently shoving him against a wall after his girlfriend credit uh, credit card was rejected while trying to buy a bag of chips. Alba could be heard in the video trying to defuse the situation as Simon walked behind the counter saying, Papa, I don't want a problem, Papa. Well, while Alba initially tried to walk away from Simon after being shoved, video shows a struggle between the two men ensued and Alba stabbed Simon repeatedly. The video seems to show Simon's girlfriend pulling a knife from her purse and attempting to grab his arm as he stabbed her boyfriend. The uh, then um, She then stabbed Alba. It was uh, back and forth, but now the Manhattan DA has dropped murder charges against the bodega worker in that self-defense exchange. On Thursday, Texas state officials filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration, challenging rather its recent guidance that health prov- uh, health providers can carry out abortions in emergency cases, regardless of their state laws. Under the guidance released earlier la- uh, last week by the Department of Health and Human Services, health providers who carry out emergency abortions, in quotes, are protected under federal law. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton responded to this by suing HHS to ensure that the left's abortion agenda can't reach Texas babies. In 2021, Texas passed Senate Bill 8, which prohibited abortions at six weeks of pregnancy unless the mother's life is in danger, an emergency, in other words. Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, also signed House Bill 1280 into law, penalizing doctors who carry out abortions with uh, time in prison or fines of up to $100,000. This trigger law came into effect with the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Biden is attempting to twist federal law to force abortions in Texas. Not on my watch, Paxton tweeted when announcing the lawsuit against HHS. White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre reacted to the lawsuit by calling it yet another example of an extreme radical Republican elected official. End quote. It's unthinkable that this public official would sue to block women from receiving a life-saving care in emergency rooms, which, by the way, was already provided for under the Texas law, a right protected under U.S. law, she added. Well, the law she is referring to is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. Earlier this week in the guidance, HHS officials announced that the act protects providers when offering legally mandated life or health-saving abortion services in emergency situations. Again, it's provided for under Texas law. This was done in line with President Joe Biden's executive order protecting access to abortions. The Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, in its very essence, is a pro-life law. Connor uh, Smellenberger, uh, director of the Federal Affairs at Family Research Council, went on to say, explaining that the federal law enacted in 86 requires anyone who comes into an emergency health care department to be stabilized and treated regardless of their insurance status or ability to pay. The lawsuit emphasizes that the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act does not authorize and has never authorized the federal government to compel health care workers and providers to perform abortions. We'll follow that lawsuit as it moves through the court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments is Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. We hope that we can reach him today. Second try, it's a charm. Well, the Pulitzer Prize long ago became a farce, Nate Jackson points out, an award from and for leftist journalist activists to celebrate leftist activism posing as journalism. Well, few of the prizes illustrated this, as well as the 2018 Pulitzer Prize won by The Washington Post and The New York Times for leading the charge with the Russian collusion hoax that for years hamstrung President Trump's presidency based on almost entirely false information fabricated by and for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Trump is right to have a beef with these uh, prizes. And last fall, he asked the Pulitzer Prize board to rescind the awards, given that everyone now knows it was all fake news. Ask Robert Mueller. The uh, coverage was no more than a politically motivated farce, which attempted to spin a false narrative that my campaign supposedly colluded with Russia, despite a complete lack of evidence underpinning this allegation. He wrote to the board last year. It has since been confirmed that the allegations were false and I have been exonerated of those charges. Too bad for you, replied the board yesterday. After two independent reviews, the board concluded everything is just fine. No passages or headlines, contentions or assertions in any of the winning submissions were discredited by the facts that emerged subsequent to the conferral of the prize, the Pulitzer board said in a statement. The 2018 Pulitzer Prize is national reporting stand, end quote. Well, we suppose that's just as well, since the award itself, well, doesn't represent what it used to, based on uh, uh, best not to legitimize the prize by making sure decent and honest reporting is necessary to win it. Well, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin arrived in Iran today, as expected, to hold meetings with leaders from the region's top players as he looks to solidify relations amid his war in Ukraine. Well, after meeting with Iran President Ibrahim Raisa, Vladimir Putin is scheduled to hold talks with Turkey's president, uh, Erdogan, when discussions on an array of issues ranging from the war in Syria to Moscow's export blockade in the Black Sea are expected. Uh, The Tuesday trip is only his second international venture since invading Ukraine in February and comes as Western officials warn that Moscow and Tehran are bolstering ties. The White House announced last week that it has uh, reason to believe that Tehran is sponsoring Putin's war in Ukraine by providing it with sophisticated drones as Russian weapons supplies lag under the heavy international sanctions that are in place. White House Secretary Advisor Jake Sullivan said the U.S. had received information indicating that Tehran was gifting several hundred unnamed uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, including weapons capable UAVs to Moscow on an expedited timeline, uh, a move that could prompt additional international sanctions. As Putin looks to solidify an alliance with Iran and his war with Ukraine, which has isolated Russian, uh, Russia economically and diplomatically, he's also set to engage with Erdogan on the issue of global the food crisis. Turkey, which is a NATO member, has um, led the way in hosting negotiations between Russia, Ukraine and the United Nations in an attempt to lift the naval blockade in the Black Sea and ensure grain and other food products like cooking oil can be exported. So that is likely to be um, the the reason and the role that uh, Turkey will play in this this meeting. Turkey has carefully uh, towed the line when it comes to Russia's war in Ukraine. They refused to sanction Moscow, but simultaneously supplied Ukraine with some defense assistance like drones. So a, a very precarious situation. It will be interesting to uh, follow in the days ahead uh, once or if it becomes clear 
the kinds of agreements that um, that are being made. Bad behavior by the world's rogue actors has become so shocking that we can lose track of their full array of dirty tricks. So it is with the age-old practice of hostage-taking, which is staging a comeback. Even one of the most famous women, basketball star Brittany Griner, couldn't escape the, um, the vicious game of hostage diplomacy. Caged since February and possibly facing a decade in prison for allegedly possessing cannabis oil, the Olympian is a pawn in Russian President Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine as he pushes back on sanctions and his uh, forces battle Western weapons. She joins dozens of fellow Americans, many more Westerners languishing in captivity. It goes far beyond Russia, from Azerbaijan to Cuba, Iran, North Korea and Venezuela. We see hostages taken again and again as bargaining chips by autocratic regimes. And while Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions prohibits this and democracies have sanctioned Syria's Assad and Russia's Putin for their aggressive aggression rather in butchery, hostage diplomacy goes strangely unpunished. Governments tend to buckle in the face of pressure by paying ransom, caving into prisoner swaps that let criminals go free and other concessions. Indeed, autocrats know that democracies are often willing to violate core values to bring home their citizens. Well, as citizens of democracies, uh, when our government allows this, when we project indifference to fellow citizens stripped of their presumption of innocence, we are in effect supporting the hostage takers. We should make the practice extremely costly for the perpetrators. And we'll see what uh, actually happens in the administration with uh, regard to uh, Griner, who is one of many Americans, certainly in Russia, but in other places around the world. Well, the Secret Service deleted January 6th texts. It's not supposed to be that kind of Secret Service. The law enforcement agency tasked with protecting the president's life seems to have done something meant to protect his reputation or at least minimize the damage. Well, many U.S. Secret Service text messages from January 5th and 6th, 2021, were erased as part of a device replacement program, noted a letter to Congress written by Homeland Security Department Inspector General Joseph Kafari. Uh, the USS um, uh, erased, this is the Secret Service, erased those text messages after the OIG requested records of electronic communications from the Secret Service as part of our evaluation of events at the Capitol on January 9th. Uh, why would those texts have been deleted after records requests? What did they reveal about Donald Trump's words or actions during the Capitol riot? Perhaps we'll find out. But the Secret Service denies any misinsinuation uh, of intentional wrongdoing. And there's an effort at this point to try to recreate the content of those text messages. January 5th and 6th. A big First Amendment win may be coming in um, underreported news. John Heidentaker uh, that power line notes that a lawsuit brought by the states of Missouri and Louisiana against public officials, including, among others, Joe Biden, Anthony Fauci and the Department of Health and Human Services. The case has potentially big implications for the First Amendment as it pertains to social media. The president's disinformation governance board may have been disbanded, but that doesn't mean. Democrats are done stifling free speech. In fact, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, she bragged about the administration's collusion with big tech to determine what speech to stifle. Missouri and Louisiana want answers regarding the identity of federal officials who have been and are communicating with social media platforms about disinformation and misinformation, malinformation and or any censorship or suppression of speech on social media, including the nature of Donald Trump granted the plaintiffs request for expedited discovery. So perhaps we'll soon find out. 
We'll just have to see. Well, to think about what happened in Uvalde, Texas, on the 24th of May makes one sick to your stomach. There's an 18-year-old psychopath. He went in on a deadly rampage through Robb Elementary School, murdering 19 children and two teachers before he was finally confronted and killed by law enforcement. Finally, after more than an hour of deadly and excruciating and utterly inexcusable delay. Well, that 19 of of these children died in the incident is tragic enough that the first law enforcement officers to arrive on the scene failed to storm the classroom and engage the shooter immediately is perhaps understandable for a few minutes under orders, perhaps until a tactical team arrived or until they heard even a single gunshot come from inside the class. But protocol for even a single officer is to engage an active shooter until the threat is ended. When one considers that 376 law enforcement officials ultimately amassed at the scene and that it took an armed legion of that size more than an hour to engage and eliminate a single active shooter, one's faith is shaken to its core. 376 to 1. What on earth were they waiting for is the question uh, that's being asked. Better odds? What exactly did these individuals sign up for if not this very thing? What is law enforcement meant to do if not protect our communities and especially schools and children. How could such a thing happen? How could the default position among so many trained professionals be in action when everything about the situation called for action? Among the failures, no one assured command despite scores of officers being at the scene uh, or assumed command. Uh, The commander of the Border Patrol tactical team waited for a bulletproof shield and worker and working master key for the classroom, which may have not even uh, been needed before entering the classroom. A Uvalde police department officer said that he heard about 9-11 or 911 calls that had come from inside the classroom and that his understanding was the officers on the other side of the building knew there were victims trapped inside. Still, no one tried to breach the classroom. Well, there's more that's been revealed. And of course, now we have video footage of what happened within the classroom as well. It is uh, heartbreaking to consider the length of time these students waited for help that didn't come. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas, in his own words. It's the book that is a companion to the documentary. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the life of Justice Clarence Thomas is as inspiring as any in American history. An intensely private man, he shared his story in a celebrated memoir, My Grandfather's Son. Fascinating to learn about that relationship. But he resumed his characteristic reticence until the filmmaker, Michael Peck, persuaded him to sit for a series of in-depth interviews. The result was the gripping documentary created equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. Well, the book that followed now makes a fuller version of that extraordinary portrait available for the first time. After President George Herbert Walker Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, my guest, Mark Paoletta, worked closely with the judge through his excruciating confirmation ordeal, the infamous high-tech lynching presided over by Senator Joe Biden. The interviews presented in the book reveal the powerful character forged in poverty and injustice and the unshakable devotion to the Constitution that have made Justice Thomas one of the country's greatest jurists. 
Well, again, joining us to talk about this new book, which uh, adds a great deal more than the, the documentary, both of which are essential. Mark Paoletta has served as general counsel of the Office of Management and Budget, counsel to Vice President Mike Pence and assistant counsel to President George Herbert Walker Bush. He was instrumental in the confirmation of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court and joins us now to talk about the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks for having me on. That was a great introduction of the, of the, the movie and the book. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let me ask you about the book. Uh, for those who saw the documentary, uh, it was extraordinary. Why the book to follow? Sure. So uh, Michael Pack, as you said, made this fantastic documentary, and I was very involved with it from the very, very beginning. It was sort of my idea to make a, a film on Justice Thomas. Michael Pack was interested. He's one of our greatest film uh, documentary filmmakers. And when he did film in 2017 and 2018, that's when he made it. He interviewed Justice Thomas for 25 hours, one-on-one. And as you remember from the film, it's just this like looking straight at you. And then he interviewed Jimmy Thomas for six hours. And once you got done with all the interviews and you were viewing it, and I was you know, looking at Michael's kind of cuts and versions, you know, there were so many things because I was in those interviews that I, that I thought would definitely make it into the film because there were just great observations or great exchanges that Justice Thomas was commenting on. And, you know, two hour film and you have more than 30 hours of interviews, a lot, most is going to be, end up on the cutting room floor. And so it was killing me uh, as, as the film was getting finalized and there were things I thought was going to get, get in uh, that they weren't. And I thought it would be a crime, right? This is unprecedented access to any Supreme Court justice, let alone Justice Clarence Thomas, who is, you know, a, a, a private man and, um, and, and, and and a good friend and I think our greatest person, and have all that stuff just kind of sitting in some whatever box uh, or, you know, hard drive just seemed, uh, like I said, a crime. So the idea was, let's pull this all together and make a book on it. Uh, so where so Justice Thomas can talk more on or, or the reader uh, can hear Justice Thomas talking more on his life, you know, his challenges, his journey. Uh, and so it's just as beautiful, intimate kind of discussion with Justice Thomas on all sorts of things. And it takes you up through. You mentioned his uh, his memoirs and I, I worked on, with, uh, with Justice Thomas on those memoirs and they're phenomenal. Those only go up to. You know, when he goes on the Supreme Court, right, that's the last page is, is he's taking the suit on the Supreme Court. And this takes you to 2018. So he's talking about his colleagues. He's talking about being a Supreme Court justice. He's talking about how he approaches um, his, his, his job his, and, and the role of a judge and a justice. Um, and then some of the cases, some of the big cases he's handled um, and decided. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book if you want to get to know Justice Thomas. Those who know him already and have seen the film, there's a lot more there. And those who don't know him, um, you know, I highly recommend the book and the movie. The movie is just so visceral because uh, mm-hmm. you see him talking and, um, uh, and, and, you know, and, and some of the images, including the confirmation hearing. Most of what we think we know about Justice Clarence Thomas is filtered through uh, the media. And one of the things that I understand that motivated him to undertake these two projects, which really was one sitting, but two projects, was to speak for himself, his own words, because it was rather interesting to me to read about them. The minute his name was mentioned as a Supreme Court nominee, uh, the misinformation and the, the campaign to mischaracterize who he was, where he's from, how many children his mother had, uh, I think really is very telling about the approach uh, to his nomination. 
Well, you know this well. You, you know the story of the, the, somebody challenging his mom with how many children she had. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, that's, I worked on that confirmation, and literally from the day he was announced, uh, that was my job. It was, I was a young lawyer in the White House, but was to fight back and get information, you know, to, to combat the misinformation on him. And, um, and so at the very beginning of those confirmation hearings, and I had gotten to know Justice Thomas before, uh, on his D.C. circuit uh, um, selection. Um, I was the first person in the White House to reach out to him in 1989 when President Bush was thinking about uh, appointing him to the D.C. circuit. So I'd gotten to know him. But literally, like, within the first couple of days after he was nominated by Justice, uh, by, by President Bush, he sat me down, and I had known him already, but we went through his entire Rolodex of, of people you know, from his life so that as and, and told me who they were. I mean, I knew some of them, but he went through it so that I could be armed to go and call friend X or Y and, and, and you know, and sort of as they attacked him, as you said, um, that he had a Confederate flag, uh, that there was, you know, domestic violence allegations, absolutely false, that he had a tax lien on his house, all these things that the left just kept making up. And the crazy thing right, is despite all those attacks, which were just nonstop, Justice Thomas, you know, by the, by the end of his first set of hearings in September, he was going to get more 60 votes. Uh, you know, because he, you know, the American people connected with him and, and, the, and the polling was great in terms of, uh, you know, his confirmation. And then, of course, they uncorked this, you know, last minute allegation uh, and all, as he says in the movie, all heck broke loose. Uh, but uh, they've been after him since he came to town, as you and you know, his story seems uh, very well, you know. And he was a, became a public figure basically in December of 1980 when uh, Juan Williams wrote an article on him. And since then, he's just been attacked, attacked, attacked. And I think he triggers the left. Uh, he exposes their racism because they think the left that somebody has to have certain mm-hmm. thoughts based on the color of their skin. And that's what Justice Thomas has been fighting against his entire life. And you can see it so much in this book. And, and the conversations uh, about his experiences and the fierceness of his, you know, think independent thinking and how he really bristles everything, you know, across the, you know, across the, 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 the spectrum. Um, and one of those instances, kind of tying it back to his, his role as a justice, is he talks about star decisis, obviously with kind of Roe v. Wade and, and the recent Dobbs opinion, where he talks about what, right when he's in Holy Cross. And he says that all black students were supposed to like and listen to Hugh Masekela. And Clarence Thomas says, you know, I have nothing against Hugh Masekela. I just didn't want to listen to him. And to be told that I had to listen to Hugh mm-hmm. Masekela was kind of offensive. And, um, and just like he, he, then he ties it to, you know, stare decisis, these notions of stare decisis, that somehow I'm supposed to accept Roe v. Wade, that I'm supposed to stop thinking about Roe v. Wade. You know, you know good, good luck with that, I think he says, you know. Um, so... It's a it's a it's a great insight into a great man. Well, it it really is. And I think one way to understand Clarence Thomas and you mentioned the the book that he had authored um, before this uh, documentary and book about his uh, relationship with his grandfather really tells us a lot about his approach to not just jurisprudence, but to life in general. And uh, the challenge he faced to be put into a box where African-Americans are supposed to reside without question as an african-american i appreciate that independence that he uh, he demonstrated but he had a had a beginning that uh, reflected the time that he was uh, he was growing up we're going to take a break here in just a moment but when we come back i'd like to talk about his grandfather 
uh, growing up in Savannah under his grandfather, who was very determined that he was going to raise young men who would be uh, men of consequence and would be able to uh, to support themselves. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Again, we're talking about the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, uh, Mark Paoletta, who is the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas, in his own words. Provides significantly more information than did the documentary. I would recommend both. Um, in Created Equal, as as was the case in his first book about his relationship with his grandfather, you really get a sense of of um, uh, Justice Thomas's background and the role that his grandfather played in his upbringing. It was not an easy life, uh, nor was it one that conformed to the norms of the time. Can you talk a little bit about his grandfather that shaped his character, his thinking, his future, and uh, really where he is today? Can you hear me? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Georgine. Sorry, can you hear me? <laughs> yes, I can. Go ahead. Sorry, I was sorry. My my, my apologies. Uh, 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 his grandfather is the most important person in his in the form of life. Um, his life utterly changed when he was, um, you know, he he was born in a shanty uh, in Pinpoint and in a little little house without, uh, but for one, you know, light bulb with electricity. Um, and, um, you know, just real, real, kind of, as he calls it, rural poverty. And he was kind of wandering the streets when he was going to school as in, in, in second grade. And he goes to live with his grandfather. His mom uh, was trying to raise three kids. The father had left. Um, and, you know, utter poverty in, you know, it's just it's the, the segregated South. And when he's seven years old, he, his grandma, his mother asks uh, his, uh, her father and stepmother uh, to, to help raise him and his brother Myers. And when he... He goes over there, and, and if you recall from the movie, his mom says, pack up all your stuff, and it literally fits into um, uh, like half of a, 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 a grocery bag. And his brother is the same thing. And they walk two blocks down. He says, it's the longest journey I've ever made because uh, it changed my life. And when he shows up, his grandfather says, boys, the damn vacation is over. And he, they both look at him like, what vacation? We've been living in this terrible you know, poverty. And he says, it's going to be rules and regulations from now on. And so from that point on, Clarence Thomas's life is like hard work after hard work, discipline, you know, getting up at 430 in the morning, uh, working for his grandfather on his oil truck. His grandfather had a oil, a small oil delivery business. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, um, it shapes Clarence Thomas through his life. And his grandfather really believed education was the key and he enrolls him in these uh this this uh, catholic school a parochial school called saint benedict's uh which is again in the segregated south and he tells his two two grandsons uh, uh you are never going to miss a day of school and if you are uh, sick I'm going to drag you to school. And if you're dead, I'm going to bring your body to, to, to school for three days to make sure that you're really dead. And, uh, and they never missed a day of school, uh, and at, at that school. And, um, so his grandfather was just this incredible self made man, um, who, you know, um, uh, you know, taught Clarence Thomas and his, and his brother Myers, you know, the, the, the life lessons, life lessons by example. 
And he, in the summertime, he, he took him out to this piece of property. He had this farm, uh, which had been in the family for some time. And they and he literally built a, a house out there because he didn't want his two grandsons to be in the city and sort of, uh, you know, getting into trouble. So every summer they went out to the farm and they built a house. They, they, they farmed out there. And um, it was just so impactful on him. And, um, and as you may know, right, at the, in the Supreme Court, there's, uh, Justice Thomas has a bust of his grandfather mm-hmm. that is on a kind of shelf that over, over, kind of overlooks him. And it has this saying, uh, uh, old man can't is dead. I helped bury him. And that is, you know, there are all these great, one of the things that was really fun in the book was, you know, Justice Thomas had talked about all these sayings that um, his grandfather used to say to him, some of them, you know, uh, pretty funny, uh, but he goes through all of these sayings uh, in, in the book, and we only had a couple, you know, that we could put into the movie. So um, grandfather was an extraordinary man, um, and as I said, enrolled him in this um Catholic school and, and the nuns, I think, are the second most impactful, you know, uh, people on him in his in his life. As, as you know, that that still kind of. So when when Clarence Thomas talks about his past, it's his grandfather uh, and, and grandmother and and the, and the nuns. You grew up in the Jim Crow South. Uh, he made the decision um, to attend seminary and then decided no, that wasn't the direction he was going to take. His grandfather had a very strong reaction to his decision to step away from from seminary. Can you talk a bit about that and uh, the the radical years that followed? Yeah. So when he so Justice Thomas uh, graduates, does very well at St. Benedict's, and then is going to go to goes to one year at St. Pius, which was still segregated, a Catholic school in in Savannah, uh, and then he, he ends up wanting to go to the seminary. Uh, it's called a minor seminary, which is like a high school, minor seminary. It's a high school. They don't exist anymore. But um, for for many of us, they had a vocation to become a priest. And again, it's 1964. uh, It's just been desegregated. So Clarence Thomas and and another student are the first two black students to enter uh, St. John Vianney minor minor seminary. And his grandfather says, okay, because it was going to cost some money uh, to go, and it was a boarding school. And and, uh, Myers Anderson, his grandfather, said, okay, if you go, you can't quit. And so uh, Clarence Thomas goes to, uh, go, does very well at St. John Vianney um, Seminary uh, and then goes off to college, basically, to, the, to a seminary. Uh, and it's, it's at that point where he has these kind of racist kind of issues, you know, where people are, are, are do some racist things to him at St. John Vianney. Um, and then at... Um, at his um, Immaculate Conception in Missouri, and the, the sort of the, the, the he was kind of losing his vocation by this point, and not sure he wanted to go. And there was this you know terrible scene where, um, or episode where um, Martin Luther King, uh, when he's assassinated, Justice Thomas hears one of the seminarians say, um, "Good, I hope that sob dies." And as Justice Thomas, it's one of the most impactful moments in the film mm-hmm. and in the book, but he talks about how like at that moment he wanted to leave. It was over any doubts. It was over at that point. And he leaves the, 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 the seminary and he basically leaves the church. And, you know, and as Justice Thomas says, you know, if, you know, he, he was never really about his faith. I think he never lost his faith. It was the church that he had a problem with. And he thought that the church should have been doing more on racial injustice issues. And, and then he said something like, if the, the, the church had worked as hard as they did on, on sort of pro-life issues, if they, you know, worked that hard on racial justice issues, 
you know, we would have, you know, would have been a lot better. And so he leaves the church um, and um, but, but goes to Holy Cross, which is, of course, a Catholic school. But he um, ends up at Holy Cross. And he, again, is it's kind of um, rejects what I'll call the values of the, the, his grandfather and the nuns. And he, um, as he says, race and racism explained everything to me by this point. And I was angry about everything. And, you know, he um, um, sort of um, sort of joined the kind of black nationalist movement. And um, and the Black Panthers kind of uh, came to, to hosted a meeting uh, with the Black Panthers. So it was a, a turbulent time for him. Uh, and as you say, radical. And um, and he ends up uh, during, I think, his, his, uh, his second year there, because he went there as a sophomore, um, at a protest that was up in Boston, like an anti-war pro- protest, mm-hmm. but it moves over to Cambridge and it becomes a riot. And it's there's a lot of violence and a lot of, you know, a, a lot of craziness. And he realizes, uh, you know, at that right, that, wow, I really left my values. And this is, I've really become something I, I didn't want to become. And he walks back to, um, he comes back to uh, Holy Cross uh, early in the morning and he stops in front of the chapel um, on the Holy Cross campus and he, and he stands out front of it because he hasn't been inside the church for a couple of years now. And he says, you know, God, if you take anger out of my heart, I'll never hate again. And, and he says that's the, the, kind of the, the beginning of the slow return to returning to faith. And it takes some time. He still is a radical um, and, um, and he's not going to church, but he you know, begins to kind of connect up back with the nuns and his faith. And ultimately, you know, he returns to the church um, and, um, and, and, and kind of during the Reagan administration, sort of as that great scene in the movie and in the book where he talks about what are the values that he's willing to die for. And it's his grandfather's values um, and, and the principles on which our country were founded. So, um, you know, that you see the, you, you see this journey and this evolution of Clarence Thomas kind of coming full circle back to his upbringing and, and the value that his, his grandfather instilled in him. There's a chapter on lessons from Yale law school that again, helped to shape the course of his professional life. Um, he was a Yale law graduate who couldn't get a job. He um, went to work for Missouri Attorney General Jack Danforth, and that was a significant relationship, as was his uh, the impact of Thomas Sowell. Can you talk a bit about what he brought from his Yale law school uh, experience and beyond? Yeah, so what's really interesting in the book, keep, going back to sort of the book more, even more so than the movie, mm-hmm. you really get a sense, and this is a through line with Justice Thomas, which is he really doesn't like, right, and this, this kind of begins or at Yale, where he's in the, sort of on the ground working on real-world problems and goes to work for the New Haven uh, Legal Assistance Program. He works there the entire time uh, that he's at, at Yale Law School. Um, and, you know, he talks about the stuff in the ivory tower who have these theories about how they're going to help, uh, you know, people and, and, and programs and all that, that, that are sort of virtue signaling or don't really work. But in, in his view, they don't care whether they work. They just want to come up with the theory. And Clarence Thomas is on the ground working in the New Haven Legal Assistance Office and working with people who actually have these day-to-day problems. And that's what he loves. And you see that through his life, like, you know, um, the, the idea that the, the, the folks, in, in, in particular, the people on the left 
who have these theories he always goes back to and don't really care how they're implemented and the harm they cause. So his, I think he gets that part. He, he worked at, um, at Holy Cross in a, with, a, with a breakfast program and saw some of the problems there and how it was implemented. Um, and, and when he goes over to, to Yale, um, he has experience. Um, and, um, and then he, he talks about the fact that, you know, when he comes up to the north, uh, and particularly at Yale, it's a different world. In fact, it's, you know, it's more intolerant and in some ways more racist mm-hmm. than anything he's encountered. Uh, and, and, um, and, that, um, and that sort of follows him through, and of course, all the way to his confirmation of, uh, again, uh, kind of the, 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 the Northeast liberal that's going to have these expectations of what he's a combination of what he's supposed to think, and then also discounting, right? You don't really fit here. You're only here because of affirmative action. And it's this stigma that he talks about and, and, and the, kind of the, 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 um, you know, the, the, the policy problems with, with some of these programs uh, and the harm they cause. And, um, and of course, in there, he also talks about, um, you know, um, um, you know he's, he, he has a son by this point, right? He's married and he has a young son and how he's not gonna let some of these social experiments be you know sort of be done on his son yeah absolutely Uh, i'll tell you what um, we need to take a break but we'll continue our conversation at the top of the hour Uh, again you're listening to the georgine rice show we're talking with mark paoletta the book created equal clarence thomas in his own words really a fascinating look from his vantage point of who he is and what he's done and what he thinks we'll be back you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Paoletta. He's the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. It's published by Regnery, released just recently, and it provides a unique, never-before-seen or read exclusive interview with Justice Clarence Thomas, the court's most senior justice. It includes much more. In fact, 95% of the book's material was not in the documentary. So if you'd like to go deeper, this is a great resource to do just that. We've been kind of walking through through uh, uh, Justice Thomas's history, let's talk about his entry into the public arena. He joined the Reagan administration. He hired Anita Hill. And for many, um, the only thing they know about Clarence Thomas is the question about whether or not the accusations raised by Anita Hill were true or not. And um, it, it sort of ended there. Can you talk about that part of his uh, of his history? He joined the administration. He worked in the EEOC, and he was, in fact, the one who hired Anita Hill at the Department of Education. Yeah, so uh, he, he did join the uh, Reagan administration, and early on he um, uh, was asked by his friend, his closest friend actually from Holy Cross in, in Yale Law School to help out somebody who was like failing at their job, and that turned out to be Anita Hill. And so um, Clarence Thomas has a favor with his friend Bill Hardy, hired uh, Anita Hill, um, at the, and it was at the Department of Education. And I say that, Georgine, because what happens is uh, – she worked for Clarence Thomas over there, uh, and then uh, you know Clarence Thomas changes jobs to the EEOC, and she follows him. That was one of the big things that came out in the, in the kind of the, the hearings and the allegations. Is why would somebody she claimed it had started over at the Department of Education, uh, and that you know he moves over to the EEOC? Why would anyone a Yale educated? She's a Yale law grad follow her sexual harasser from one job to another. It just doesn't make any sense. It also came out, of course, that she, uh, when she ultimately left uh, working for Justice Thomas or then EEOC chairman uh, Clarence Thomas, um, she continued to call him uh, when she left 
Uh, and, you know, there were these call logs, which she originally lied about, um, and we produced them that showed all of these calls to him. So um, there's so many facts uh, about why her story and why her, um, her witnesses' stories never added up. Um, and I actually set up a website in 2016. It's called com, and your listeners could go to that website and see every single um, um, you know, uh, 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 analysis of her testimony, her witnesses' testimony. There were 12 women who actually testified for Clarence Thomas who worked, uh, uh, you know, with uh, Anita Hill or Clarence Thomas. So not a single person came forward and testified on behalf of Anita Hill. When she went to the, um, when the FBI came to interview her, she gave the FBI two names of people she said would support her. They didn't. Um, and so not a single person came forward who worked together with the, with the two of them who supported Anita Hill's uh, story or claims. And at the end of those hearings, and the American people, and you remember them watching them, everyone watched those hearings at a certain age. Um, the American people believed Clarence Thomas 58 to 24%. 58% and two to one believed Clarence Thomas over Anita Hill. And only 26% of women believed Anita Hill. So, you know, in my view, the allegations were thoroughly debunked. Um, even Joe Biden, it, it was on record saying he didn't believe Anita Hill. Um, it, as Clarence Thomas says, it was a circus. It was a national disgrace. As he famously said, it was a high-tech lynching. And I worked with him on those um, uh, you know, dur- dur- during the, that confirmation hearing. And so there's so many facts, and, and I'm happy to talk about it, but I would point your, your listeners to um, that website, anitahillcase.com, because, again, one of the other things is just as Thomas had been appointed to all these positions over the years and you go through a, a, an FBI background check where they look into, you know, they interview everyone you worked with, they interview where you went to school and all that kind of stuff. Nothing like this had ever, ever, ever come up on Clarence Thomas through five FBI background checks. And so for this to kind of come out of the blue uh, was just, you know, not plausible in my view. And as the facts un- unfolded and the stories unfolded, you know, you don't need to believe me. You can believe the American people who watched those hearings and came to their conclusion that she was not telling the truth and Clarence Thomas was. And, and that's why he was confirmed 52 to 48. It was interesting to me to read about his response and his thinking during that uh, that season, which really reflect his upbringing uh, by his grandfather, why he chose not to address certain things. Um, what he watched and didn't watch, what he was thinking through the process. And when he finally spoke in his own defense, um, the words that he used. I found that absolutely fascinating. And I felt like I knew Clarence Thomas a bit better in the midst of all of that, because you don't really get the inside uh, look watching the hearings. And he, uh, again, is a very uh, private and for the most part, very quiet man. So this really gave an insight that I thought was very helpful. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things is he goes back to the fact that when he was, you know, first nominated, the, 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 it was the pro-abortion, you know, uh, groups that wanted to destroy him the most. And uh, because, they, you know, th- th- that was this issue, as he said, right, they will destroy my life. They will um, belittle me because they want this one issue that they didn't think, uh, you know, I, I would be solid for them on. And so he links all of this, including the attacks on him with Anita Hill, to kind of the, 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 the pro-choice, pro-abortion forces trying to block him from being on the Supreme Court. And so he, you know, as I talked about earlier, the minute this, you know, he was nominated, there were attacks, there were attacks, attacks. It just didn't work. 
um, and he was, you know, uh, we've been successfully able to push back on all of them and show why they were not true or they were distorted or whatever. And so he was looking at a very healthy confirmation margin of in the 60, 60 votes. Now, remember, at the time, there were 57 Democrats in the Senate at the time. So, you know, we were, we were the, the, the vote total looked pretty well, pretty good. And then this thing kind of blows up. And, um, and in fact, when, the, you know, when it first was, and again, I, I can spend hours on this, this topic. I've done a lot of work on it. But when, you know, the, the allegations were first made, uh, you know, Joe Biden, and every Democrat senator, right, um, had access to that to her statement in the FBI file that was done. And, you know, the interviews that were done immediately after they interviewed Clarence Thomas. They interviewed, and you know, they interviewed those two women she, she had pointed them to, um, and and um, and all the senators looked at it and said, "This is not worth delaying the vote on because it was so not credible." Um, and these were all Democrat senators who who, uh, who made that decision. They were in the majority. The Republicans. The, the ranking Republican was Tom Thurman at the time. He didn't share it to Republican members. So um, except for Arlen Specter, who found out about it separately. But in any event, my point is, is that the, the allegations did not up when they were made. Um, when she came and testified publicly, her story changed so much uh, that um, there was questions about how do you tell dissent in your statement something and then when you interviewed by the fbi you told them basically the same thing and then when you testified it was absolute all the crazy things that said that everyone knows those hearings for um she never told anyone those stories in the first two sessions and when the, the senator specter asked her why did you why is it so different from your original two statements to what you are t- testifying to publicly she said like why didn't you tell the fbi that she said oh the fbi didn't it told me I didn't have to say this if I, if I felt uncomfortable. Literally, both FBI agents, these are career people, swore out affidavits during the hearing saying that's an absolute lie. We told Anita Hill she should tell us everything, and if she's uncomfortable talking about some of these uncomfortable things, um, that the male agent, because it was a male and female, the male agent would leave, and she could just talk to the female agent. So, like, those are the kinds of things that were happening that people forget now because of this onslaught of nonstop trashing of Clarence Thomas in this narrative of all these different movies and books were sort of taking me to Hill's side. Um, but, but lo- all these pieces of information were coming out at the time and people understood this story didn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation for one more segment. Uh, we'll talk about the, how the radical became a, uh, uh, originalist in the constitution and his, um, his impact on the Supreme court. Now the, the longest serving member sitting on the court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. I noted uh, recently there was a... Um, a support letter written on the Supreme Court justice. We, the undersigned, condemn the barrage of racist, vicious and ugly personal attacks that we are witnessing on Clarence Thomas, a sitting Supreme Court justice, whether it is calling him a racist slur and Uncle Tom or questioning his blackness over his jurisprudence. The disparagement of this man, of his faith and of his character is abominable. Um, also, there was Hillary Clinton, who uh, went out of her way to claim to have discerned the inner workings of the Supreme Court justice, his mind at Yale Law. Although she wasn't in his graduating class, she declared that she knew Thomas and perceived him as a person of grievance. Why she inserted herself as a person of grievance herself into the situation, 
uh, is not altogether clear. We've had people suggest that they hope Clarence Thomas eats all the wrong things and dies early like black men do. Clarence Thomas celebrated his 74th birthday. That's two years beyond the life expectancy for a black male in this country. We're talking about the book created equal Clarence Thomas in his own words in which he tells his story, not through the filter of mainstream media or his critics, but his own thoughts in his own way. And um, uh, encouraging you to uh, to see the documentary and read the book. Both contain a lot of uh, information. The other does not. And we're talking with Mark Paoletta on that. Let's talk about his uh, his public life, his uh, life on the court, entering the public arena, the birth of an originalist from the radical that we read about earlier in the book. Yeah, so great, great summary, George. I love your uh, descriptions uh, of, of the left and their attacks. He really just triggers on Hillary Clinton and just laughable. Um, but yes, you know, he joins the Reagan administration. And what's really interesting, right, among any like uh, senior official in the government, what does Clarence Thomas do? He gets the EEOC, which was atrociously run by Eleanor Holmes Norton. Everyone agreed. A GAO report came out just after Clarence Thomas started. Uh, at the EOC, saying it was the most terrible run agency, I think, in the federal government. He turns it around, gets it up and running, and, 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 and gets a great plaque given to him when he leaves uh, by the EOC career employees. The Washington Post even says he did a great job there. But in the middle of that, he really gets interested in the Constitution, in our founding, right? And he, and he brings in these two Claremont uh, kind of Fellows at Mount Institute, um, this conservative place out in California, to help kind of talk, talk through the Constitution and our founding ideals. And that literally becomes the foundations for his jurisprudence when he finally gets to the court um, and sort of, you know, is looking at natural law. And when he gets on the court, his respect for the role of a, just, a judge and a justice, which is you're supposed to be faithful to the Constitution and not, and not substitute your own policy choices, uh, that's left, you know, to the, to, to the elected bodies, to the representatives. And so he is our most committed originalist, and that is applying original meaning of the Constitution um, or, you know, a, a statute um, by, by, what, by what the original meaning is. And again, not what your, your personal preferences are. And that has taken, and you just saw that happen with respect to the Dobbs case and overturning Roe v. Wade. And I think Justice Thomas, this will probably surprise a lot of your listeners, Justice Thomas writes the most opinions per year of any justice by far. Okay, he writes somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 opinions per year, whether there are majority opinions, concurrences, or dissents. And by way of comparison, um, I think the next closest might be like Justice Breyer used to write in like 25 or so. Sotomayor writes in 22. Um, Justice Kagan only writes 10 per year. But Justice Thomas, for many, many years now, has been laying down a body of work uh, through his opinions that goes through every kind of section of the Constitution and is giving his, his take faithful to the Constitution, faithful to the original meaning, and laying down so now Right. He used to be solo dissent. He used to be in the minority, you know, in terms of losing the votes. Now, as the court has become his way, all of these opinions that he's spent years and years writing and laying down, as I call it, are now the foundation for all of these opinions that are happening right now, even if he doesn't write them. 
So the, the, the recent opinion by Justice Gorsuch that was on the EPA reigning in the administrative states with, with the EPA running wild under this statute, and they basically said you can't do that. Justice Thomas was writing on that back you know, six, seven years ago. He did three significant opinions that laid out the framework for how to approach those cases. He, you know, he, he talked about, he wrote about and voted uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade from the time he got on the court in 1992. So he's been writing constantly on overturning Roe v. Wade, why it's not a right in the Constitution. What happens? Sam Alito writes the opinion, and Justice Thomas writes the concurrence. But all of these cases, the religious liberties case, the Second Amendment case that he did write um, on making Second Amendment rights consistent with the, the original meaning of the Constitution, going back and looking at what the, the, when it was ratified, what that meant, uh, and the rights it gave uh, the American citizen. And so it's really spectacular right now that you're seeing this, you know, Justice Thomas was always incredibly influential. And there was a book that came out that showed how from the very first time he went on the Supreme Court, the very first conference, he switched Scalia and Rehnquist votes to his, to, to his view. And so he's been, you know, a, a force since the beginning. Of course, the left has tried to attack him, but now no one right, can deny that he is the most influential justice mm-hmm. on the Supreme Court. And, and more importantly, he has inspired a generation of, of, of law students and new lawyers. And he has 15 former law clerks that are federal judges now, federal judges and a couple state judges. Uh, and they are, they were trained by him. Right? They are, they are his, his students, if you will. And they never leave. It's a Thomas family, which is very strong. So he is, he is the most impactful justice in, in, in our in our lifetime and maybe ever, uh, and uh, and he's our greatest living American. I think he showed through both his forcefulness and boldness of his opinions, and also how he never backed down. I think he gave a lot of courage as a model to you know the younger justices that are up there right now, particularly after the despicable leak of Bob's opinion, where I think somebody did that to help intimidate some mm-hmm. of these justices to come off of that opinion. And I think Justice Thomas's kind of life. An example he said all the way back to, 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 to his confirmation, I don't run from bullies. That's what he said, right? I'm not going to withdraw. I prefer to assassin's bullet than leave this process. He is not going to back down. I think he showed that example to these justices, and it's, and it's helped create this, this incredible majority that's on the Supreme Court right now. Yeah, and again, understanding something of his background explains where that courage comes from. Clarence Thomas mentioned Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell as examples of rulings that could be reconsidered. That's the latest outrage on the left. Um, your thoughts on, on that? Obviously, a Supreme Court justice doesn't bring cases before the court. They have to come through the whole system. But your thoughts on his his rather bold statement on those issues uh, after overturning Roe versus Wade? Yeah, I, I loved it. It's classic Clarence Thomas, which is, you know, what did, what did he say? He's faithful to the Constitution and come what may. All right. So what did he say there? He said that substantive due process is the, the, the term of art that the Supreme Court used to create rights. Now, the, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment is just a procedural thing. You get fairness. It doesn't say you have a right in there. OK. And so Justice Thomas has said all of these cases that are decided on that basis, including Roe, are wrong because there is no such thing as substantive due process. And so he would he was basically pointing out that all, he's not saying it doesn't exist in some other piece of the Constitution, but for that line of analysis, it, it, it they're wrong and we should reconsider those cases. So now, and what did he do to particularly, I love what he does, he trolls his critics, as I say. He points out what's the most 
infamous example or the most infamous examples of substantive due process, it was Roger B. Taney's decision, he points this out in his concurrence, in the Dred Scott case, right? This despicable decision where a, 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 that judge, that chief justice, came up with a right of slave owner to own slaves. And that even though there was a law that said if a slave escaped from the South and got to the North, he was free. Roger Taney said, no, 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 I'm making up a right for this slave owner. So Clarence Thompson you like substantive due process? That's what could happen when you have unelected people inventing rights that you may not like. You may like your, your right to an abortion. You may like X right. But hey, remember, this is where substantive due process got us last time. Yeah. And yeah. I loved how he, he used that as an example. Well, I, I so appreciate the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, because it gives us an insight into his life, his history, his character. Uh, and the influence that he wields on the course that I think most people underestimate. And I thank you for the documentary and for the book that help us better understand this longest serving sitting justice um, who has a significant outsized uh, influence on the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Regine. Really appreciate having me on. Again, uh, our guest, Mark Paoletta, co-author, along with Michael Pack, equi- uh, Created Equal. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Going back to some of the day's headlines and an age old question. Lawmakers are reacting to scrutiny over the president's fitness to run in 2024 with concern about the president's age in that year. 2024 lawmakers say voters should judge the president on performance rather than age running on empty. The White House vehemently denies a double standard as officials take a victory lap in the sinking gasoline prices and paying the price. Crime and inflation deal a devastating financial blow to inner city communities. Tesla CEO Elon Musk is planning to file a countersuit against Twitter soon to uh, uh, very soon to ditch the forty four billion dollar agreement to buy the social media giant, according to a new report. Sources close to the case told the New York Post that the countersuit was intended to push a Delaware court of chancery judge to grant Musk's legal team more time to gather information about bots on Twitter. The primary reason Musk gave for uh, reneging on the deal in a double whammy. Inflation may hit Social Security recipients twice and we can't sit idly by. The House is planning to vote on same-sex marriage, abortion rights, and contraceptive coverage over the SCOTUS concern. And a 2024 watch, former Vice President Mike Pence is sparking further speculation over a White House run with his upcoming trip to New Hampshire. And a defiant Vice President Kamala Harris declared, we will not let the filibuster stand in our way in protecting voting rights and abortion access. Speaking out for his beliefs, New Hampshire GOP candidate Bruce Fenton is speaking for 24 hours to save the filibuster after the president revealed his support to end the procedure, at least short term. Former President Trump scolds the uh, Pulitzer Prize Board for standing by their discredited 2018 Russia Gate honors, saying people don't trust us. And MSNBC host wonders if she's doing more harm than good. And a Washington Post columnist Perry Bacon Jr., called on the media to cover Biden more positively, saying the relentless negative coverage is toxic, exposing, of course, that wasn't a concern under the previous administration, which was toxic, exposing anti-family sentiments. Senator Marco Rubio writes the SCOTUS abortion decision exposes how woke corporations are hostile to American families. 
and the killing of the Greenwood uh, Park Mall shooter by a 22-year-old Good Samaritan gets mixed reaction from the media. NBC says that four people were dead, including the suspected shooter, after a man with a long gun entered a mall south of Indianapolis and opened fire, police said. Two others were injured in the early evening attack in Greenwood uh, Park Mall. Jim Eisen, the police chief from Indiana, said at a Sunday night news conference, one remained hospitalized, he said. A 12-year-old girl was uh, with abrasions, was treated and released. Four of six people who were injured or killed were female, Eisen said. The shooter appeared to have been fatally shot by a 22-year-old Good Samaritan who witnessed the attack and opened fire with a handgun with the intention of ending the assault, Eisen said. The real hero of the day was the Samaritan that was lawfully carrying a firearm who was able to stop the shooter almost as soon as it began. Greenwood uh, Mayor Mark Myers also praised the uh, the Good Samaritan. This is the phrase they've applied to the individual who stepped in, saying in a statement Sunday evening, this person saved lives tonight. Democrats are moving quickly to codify gay marriage. As Justice Thomas says, the court should reconsider their decision The insider reports that the conservative Supreme Court justice, as we discussed earlier, wrote in his concurring opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health that the high court should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process uh, uh, precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence and Obergfell. Also naming the decisions establishing the right to contraception and invalidating anti-sodomy laws. A group of largely Democratic lawmakers introduced legislation in both the House and the Senate on Monday called the Respect of Marriage Act, which would codify Obergfell into law, protecting same-sex and interracial marriage, which wasn't an issue. Well, this comes shortly after the president signed an executive order to protect abortion access after the constitutional right was stripped and given back to the states to uh, regulate access. Uh, Axios reports that I look forward to bringing it to the floor for a vote this week. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said in a statement, Senate Majority Leader uh, Dick Durbin told Axios last week that when the legislation reaches the Senate, it will be a top priority for him. But despite the bill having bipartisan support from the outset, it's unclear whether it will garner the GOP votes needed to bypass a filibuster. More than 20 GOP senators declined to stake out positions on the issue in interviews with Axios. What they're saying, the DOMA, was rendered inert by the Supreme Court ruling of Obergfell versus Hodges in 2015. But lawmakers say taking the law off the books altogether is a necessary post-Roe move. If Justice Thomas' concurrence teaches anything, it's that we cannot let your guards down, I'm quoting, or the rights and freedoms that we have come to cherish will vanish into the cloud of radical ideology. What the Supreme Court justice suggested was there is no constitutional right It should be up to the people what they permit and what they forbid. According to a new poll, President Biden's economic numbers are 11 points lower than former President Trump's worst numbers. CNBC says the President Joe Biden's overall and economic approval numbers have reached the lowest levels of his presidency and fallen further than that of either his two predecessors, according to the latest CNBC All-American Economy Survey. With Americans feeling crushed beneath the weight of rising prices, The president's economic approval dropped five points from the prior survey in April to just 30 percent. The president's economic record is supported by just six percent of Republicans, 25 percent of independents and 58 percent of Democrats, a very low number for his own party. In comparison, President Donald Trump's economic approval bottomed out at 41 percent. President Barack Obama's at 37 percent. President Biden's approval on his overall handling of the presidency came in at 36 percent 
one point lower than Trump's worst rating. Among survey participants, 57 percent disapprove of the president's handling of the presidency. Mayor Muriel Bowser feels pressure of bust um, illegal immigrants to her town, Washington, D.C. Well, the D.C. mayor appeared on CBS Face the Nation on Sunday and talked about the homelessness crisis facing the district, which is a sanctuary city. When asked about how illegal immigrants are contributing to the problem, given that they're being bust from bust in from border states, Bauer admitted it was has become a significant issue. In late May, Abbott said he had sent 45 buses of illegal immigrants to the nation's capital so far and vowed to keep it up. Benny Johnson says D.C. Mayor uh, Muriel Bowser says illegal immigrants are being tricked into getting on buses to Washington and that the federal government needs to take action to prevent it. In other words, it's all right for them to swarm the border states, but please don't bring the problem to Washington, D.C. J.K. Rowling decries woke policy, allowing men to accompany extremely vulnerable, disabled girls to the bathroom. In a series of posts on social media, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, she spoke out against a woke policy that is reportedly taking place at a school that she says endangers extremely vulnerable teenage girls. She shared an article on Twitter that was reportedly written by unnamed parents with a daughter who is a severely learning disabled 16 year old. The report says that a policy change at the school will now allow men to take their daughter to the bathroom one on one behind a closed door. The school's governing body decided to remove cross-gender consent from the personal and intimate care policy, according to the article. Russia is planning to target weaponry provided to Ukraine by Western countries. The Wall Street Journal reports that Russia ordered its focus to target the long-range missiles and artillery weapons that Western countries have recently supplied to Ukraine, a sign of how Kyiv's um, additional firepower has begun to reshape the conflict. On Monday, Defense Minister Sergei Shogu told a group of Russian troops to make Ukraine's long-range weaponry a priority target to prevent shelling in parts of the eastern Ukraine held by Russian forces, according to the Russian Defense Ministry. A recent shipment of advanced Western weapons has reinforced Ukraine's efforts to fend off Russian invasions, and whether those weapons will enable Kyiv to turn the tide remains unclear. Say Western officials, U.S. HIMARS mobile rocket launchers and other systems from North Atlantic Treaty Organization countries have enabled Ukraine to strike Russian bases far behind the front lines, including ammunition depots. The Pentagon has uh, dispatched eight of these weapons to Ukraine and has pledged to deliver another four. Ukraine's defense minister said last week that Kyiv has also received the first M270 multiple launch rocket systems pledged by the U.K., Germany and Norway. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, our final segment. Well, a heat wave is ravaging Europe. According to the Associated Press, the heat wave is broiling Europe. It spilled northward Monday to Britain. It fueled ferocious wildfires in Spain and France, which evacuated thousands of people and scrambled water bombing planes and firefighters to battle flames in tender, dry forests. Two people were killed in the blaze in Spain uh, that its uh, prime minister linked to global warming, saying climate change kills. 
Well, the, the, uh, that toll comes on top of the hundreds of heat-related deaths reported in the Iberian Peninsula as high temperatures have gripped the uh, continent in recent days and triggered wildfires from Portugal to the Balkans. Some areas, including the northern part of Italy, are also experiencing extended droughts. Climate change makes such life-threatening extremes less of a rarity, and heat waves have come even to the places like Britain, which braced for possible record-breaking temperatures. So I think everyone acknowledges climate's change. The question is what man can or cannot do about it. Salem Media Group has achieved a notable ascension in conservative media. Uh, The last few years have brought enormous change to the uh, media landscape. And one of the brightest lights in the sea of change is what's happening at Salem Media Group. Officials at the company say its uh, rise to prominence in the conservative media arena has been building for more than 10 years. Congratulations to Salem Media, the owner of this and other stations across the country. The White House claims credit for falling gas prices, saying gas prices have been dropping for 34 days straight, about 50 cents a gallon, boasted Joe Biden on Monday. That saves the average driver about $25 a month. The reduction in price is primarily due to decreased demand as drivers stay home. But the president wants you to think he did that by begging the Saudis for more oil and tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, a substantial part of which went to China. It was everyone else's fault when the prices shot up from $2.39 to $5.02 on the president's watch. But it is his, uh, uh, it, it's to his credit when some of that uh, price pressure eases. Uh, to quote the president, that's a bunch of malarkey. Besides, based on his uh, math, the average driver is paying at least $100 a month more and when he took office, no disinformation governance board needed. It wasn't long ago that the Biden administration paused its disinformation governance board pending further review. Well, the Department of Homeland Security has announced that there's no need for the board. We're not ready as of yet to provide recommendations on the department's most effective approach to disinformation threats, said the DHS. Don't think that means the idea is gone, just that branding will look different. Indeed, the same thing under a different name will commence under the stellar leadership of Kamala Harris, the vice president. And given that radical uh, views are committed to censorship, the issue is far from settled. It's just reached a pause. Landfills are full of solar panels. Wind and solar power are supposed to be the great saviors of the planet, producing clean energy and leading us to utopia. But not so fast, says reality. We've covered many of the issues with solar power over the years, but the L.A. Times has an update. Many retired panels are already winding up in landfills where in some cases they could potentially contaminate groundwater with toxic heavy metals such as lead, selenium and cadmium. That sounds pretty bad. The problem is exacerbated by the fact that California generously subsidized millions of panels over the last two decades, and they're nearing the end of their life cycle. The problem, says the Times, illustrates how cutting-edge environmental policy can create unforeseen problems down the road. End quote. Nothing gets past these guys. The industry is supposed to be green, said an industry expert, but in reality, it's all about the money. Exactly. Well, New York makes nearly everywhere a gun-free zone after the Supreme Court's ruling, and Bidenflation threatens almost half of small business owners. The president could declare a climate emergency as soon as this week, most likely tomorrow, and the president halted prosecutions for most illegal border crossings. Washington Mayor Bowser is being torched as a hypocrite for complaining about border migrants bus to D.C., her territory, and Cori Bush nears $400,000 in her campaign cash to private security while refusing to rein in calls to defund the police and other 
communities that need safety and security as well. Authorities are yet to arrest anyone over more than 50 pro-abortion attacks and a woke college professors call for archaeologists to stop identifying ancient human remains by gender because we don't know how they felt or self-identified. Federal prosecutors have declined to prosecute members of a production team associated with Stephen Colbert's late night comedy show who were arrested last month on Capitol Hill. A production team had had been uh, charged with unlawful entry and had a court date set for this week after being arrested by Capitol Police while filming segments for cigar smoking puppet Triumph, the insult comic dog. Handled by a local comedian. Well, a congressional source told the Washington Examiner that the late show crew members were asked to leave earlier in the day uh, when they were outside the January 6th committee hearing room without proper media credentials. Despite the earlier warnings, the crew came back later to film segments for the show and were creating a disturbance by banging on congressional doors at night. A source at the scene said they knew what they were doing. A transgender woman who is a biological male, a man, and who impregnated two inmates has been removed from a New Jersey female prison, and he's crying foul. Let's see here. Vice President Kamala Harris on Monday compared abortion bans to slavery and that they both are claiming ownership over human bodies. So the Supreme Court decision, according to her interpretation, is claiming ownership over the bodies of women when, in fact, they simply remanded the decision making to the people. A lot of the people are women and they will decide whether or not abortion will be made lawful in their respective states. Um, It seems to me the slavery analogy applies more to the practice of abortion itself, where there are individuals who claim ownership over the developing human children in utero. But that's my take. It's important to note that to support a woman's ability, the vice president said, not her government, but her to make that decision does not require anyone to abandon their faith or their beliefs. The vice president said in a speech to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People or NAACP, it just requires us to agree the government shouldn't be making that decision for her. Hence, the people will decide. And think about it. For the first time in generations, the United States Supreme Court, the highest court of the land, the former court of Thurgood Marshall, took a constitutional right that had been recognized from the people of America, from the women of America. Okay, Brown versus Board of Education. You have the Supreme Court ruling in which blacks were only a fifth of the value of whites in America. Those were precedents that were overturned. So what she's suggesting is that the Supreme Court always gets it right the first time. Well, she went on to there. Her comments come nearly a month after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, giving states the authority to regulate abortions within their borders. Well, on this day in history, the first women's rights convention convened in Seneca Falls, New York. 1961, TWA becomes the first airline to begin showing regularly scheduled in-flight movies as it presents By Love Possessed. I have no idea. Anyway, it was shown to first-class passengers on a flight from New York to Los Angeles. 1969, Apollo 11 and its astronauts Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins go into orbit around the moon. 1980, the Moscow Summer Olympics begin, minus the dozens of nations, including the U.S., that are boycotting the Games because of the Soviet military intervention in Afghanistan. 1985, Krista McAuliffe of New Hampshire is chosen to be the first schoolteacher to ride aboard the space shuttle, Sadly, McAuliffe and six other crew members would die when the Challenger exploded shortly after liftoff in January of 1986. 
1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush joins former presidents Ronald Reagan, Gerald R. Ford, and Richard M. Nixon at ceremonies dedicating the Nixon Library and Birthplace since uh, re-designated uh, the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California. 1993, President Bill Clinton announces a policy allowing homosexuals to serve in the military under a compromise dubbed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Don't Pursue. And in 2005, President George W. Bush nominates John Roberts to the U.S. Supreme Court. And finally, 2016, Republicans convening in Cleveland nominate Donald Trump as their presidential standard bearer. In brief videotaped remarks, uh, Trump uh, thanks the delegates, saying this is a movement, but we have to go all the way. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.